Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series titled His Story, Our Story. Rather than a series of unconnected events, the Bible is one story, it's the story, and it's also our story. Thanks for joining us. I want you to think of a time in your life when you experienced what you would just describe as total and utter freedom. Can you remember a moment like that? For me, it was about every, the beginning of June, when that bell rang at three o'clock, and I knew that three months of freedom was waiting for me as a student. Well, this morning, we're continuing our series called His Story, Our Story, where we're looking at the grand story of the Bible, and if you're following on your notes here, the story comes to the defining moment of Israel's history. The defining moment of Israel's history, and it's all about freedom. Not just freedom for three months from school, but freedom from slavery, freedom from bondage. Now let me just do a review for you. If you haven't been with us, we've been doing this series now. This is our fifth week. We started God's story with the story of creation. In the beginning, God created everything, and it was good. Then we looked at the fall in Genesis 3 through 11, and we saw that all that God created to be good, unfortunately, was broken. Then we looked at Genesis 12, all the way through the end of Genesis, where God makes a promise to a man named Abraham, and he says, I promise that one day I will restore all of this brokenness through you. Then last week, we sort of saw, like, uh uh-oh, What's happening with this promise? The Israelites, the people God had chosen to fulfill this promise through, had been put in slavery for over 400 years. And we saw last week that they cried out to God, and God heard their cry, and he sent them a deliverer by the name of Moses. And so we left off the story last week with them ready to be delivered. And we come to this event, maybe the most famous event in the Old Testament called the Exodus. So famous is this event that even people who don't really know the Bible know the story of the Exodus. In fact, it's been made popular in our culture by many different forms. In music, Frederick Handel has written symphonies about the Exodus Charles Schultz, some of you know from Charlie Brown, he's done cartoons about the Exodus. Bob Marley, you familiar with him? He actually sang a song about the Exodus. So famous is this story, and yet even more famous is the story of the Exodus in the Bible itself. You'd be hard-pressed to find a story more referred to in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament than the Exodus. It's the defining moment of their history. In fact, I'll just show you one cool example of how the New Testament uses this idea of Exodus to point to Jesus and his salvation. One day, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Some of you might remember this story. It's kind of bizarre. He turns all white. All of a sudden, Moses shows up. Elijah shows up. They're having a conversation about what Jesus is doing, where he's going. And we read these words from Jesus' own lips in Exodus, or in Luke He says, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, interestingly, the word departure there is actually the word exodus. What are Elijah and Moses and Jesus talking about on that mountain? They're talking about exodus, a new exodus, an exodus that he is going to do for his people now. Why is this story so famous and so important, especially in the Bible? Well, if you're following on your notes there again, I believe it's down to this. 
This is really the big idea of this whole message this morning. The Exodus is the pattern of how God redeems his people. Why is this story so important? Because it is the pattern of how God redeems his people. This is the Old Testament version of salvation. But it points to an even greater salvation, an even greater exodus in Jesus. And so very simply, you can't understand his story or your story unless you understand this story. And so with that, we're going to turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, we say it every week. We have some Bibles in the seats underneath you there. I'd love for you to grab one of those black Bibles. Today especially would be a good day to have God's Word in front of you firsthand. Because as you're turning there, let me just explain what we're going to do this morning. Because this text is so important and it's really so big... I kind of came at it this way this week. I wanted to look at it as sort of like an investigative reporter. What what do we need to know about the Exodus event? And so we're going to ask the four big questions that any investigative reporter asks. We're going to ask why, how, what, and so what of the Exodus. And to do that, we're going to be going back and forth between Exodus 13 and 14. So I'm just warning you, you're going to be flipping around a little bit, but all for the goal of answering those four questions. You ready? Got your Bibles ready? Great. Well, last week, as we mentioned, we left off the story with the Israelites in bondage or slavery. But through the sacrifice of that spotless lamb on Passover, God was going to bring them out of their bondage, bring them out of their slavery. And the word for that, the word for that is redemption. The word for that is redemption. There's no more basic word to understand in the Bible than the word redemption. And if you're following on your notes, here's what redemption means. Redemption means to be released from bondage. Redemption means to be released From bondage. So anytime you read the word redeem or redemption in the Bible, think about that. It means to be released from slavery and at the heart of understanding what God's story is all about. You really want to understand the Bible. It is about releasing people from bondage. Jesus said, I have come so that I may set the captives free. That is his mission. But that leads to the first question I wanted to ask this morning, which is, why does God redeem us? Why does God redeem us? If you're on your notes, in this story, I think we see two reasons for the purpose of our redemption. And the first is found at the very first verse of chapter 13 there. So if you're ready, let's look at it. It says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Now, the word I want us to notice here is the word consecrate. If you're following, God redeems to consecrate a people for himself. Consecrate. Not a word we use much anymore in our common language today. What what does that mean? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. Consecrate just means taking something ordinary, normal, And setting it aside for a special purpose. Setting it aside for a special purpose. I'll give you an example. When we go visit my in-law's house, my father once hit a hole-in-one that won him $10,000 on a golf course. He has consecrated that card and that golf ball by putting it in a frame that now hangs in his living room. He has taken something ordinary, a golf ball, 
and consecrated it for a special purpose. Now, amazingly, the Bible tells us that as followers of Jesus, we have been consecrated by God. What that means to be the people of God, then, is that we are set apart. We are set apart to be what? Holy. The bottom line of consecration, it just means we now belong to God. Now that should shape everything about the way I live my life. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, everything that I do should be rooted in this idea that I've been consecrated by God. I am not my own anymore. I have been bought with a price. I belong to God. Everything God has given to me is a gift from his hand. Paul would talk about this idea of consecration this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Consecrated. Now, the problem with this is that everything in my flesh And everything in the world around me fights against this idea of consecration. I don't want to belong to anyone but me. I want to live my life the way I want to live my life. And we've bought into this idea that that's where we find real freedom. Do you ever feel that pull in your life or is it just me? I don't belong to anybody. I want to live how I want to live. But friends, the story, the Bible tells us, whether you believe it or not, that is just another form of bondage, ultimately. It's just another form of slavery. You're not going to find true freedom there. We did a whole study on the person who probably experienced freedom to the greatest capacity anybody ever could. His name was Solomon. Everything that we think is going to bring us joy and freedom. Solomon, he went after it because he had the resources to do it. And what did we see over and over again when we did this series a while ago in the book of Ecclesiastes? What conclusion does Solomon come to? Meaningless. Meaningless. It's all meaningless. It's all another form of bondage. What if I told you that one of the clearest messages of the Bible from front cover to back cover is that real freedom is found when you understand that you belong to God and that his way of life for you is where you're going to find true joy. Now you've been probably reading the story of the Old Testament, some of you, and you recognize that the Israelites didn't believe it. They're constantly walking away from their calling and from their purpose as God's consecrated people. And yet, if you're real with yourself as you're reading that, you go, that's just like me. I'm constantly being pulled away from this I belong to God mentality into a I belong to myself mentality. Because I think that's where freedom is found. The second purpose of the Exodus is found everywhere in this story, but let's look at one example in chapter 14, verse 4. So some of you are going to need to flip over. It says it as clearly as I can here. It says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, God speaking, and he will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Now, why did God part the waters of the Red Sea? The answer is very simple. It explains the entirety of the Exodus. Indeed, it is the answer that explains 
everything about what God has ever done, is doing, and will ever do, the answer is for his glory. The answer is for his glory. If you're falling on your notes, God redeems to bring glory to his name. God redeems to bring glory to his name. Now, I know some of you might bristle at this, go, well, what is God, like patting himself on the back here? What's his problem? Friends, it comes down to this. God is the one who reigns. And one day, every person is either going to acknowledge that or they're going to deny that. The Egyptians have denied that. They worship other gods. They've denied God most high. And so God is going to bring glory to his name. And he does that in two ways in this event. Yes, of course, he does it by rescuing his people. But he tells us here another way he's going to bring glory to his name is by judging the Egyptians for their sins. In fact, look down at verses 17 and 18. He says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. The Exodus event is a story of fantastic deliverance for God's people. But friends, it's also a story of terrible judgment on those who defy God and who refuse to recognize him as God. The New Testament will present the gospel of Jesus as the great new exodus event of our deliverance. It provides salvation for everyone who believes. But just like the Egyptians in the exodus, those who defy God, those who refuse to recognize and follow Jesus as Lord, will suffer judgment. This too is part of the gospel. He is the name above every other name. And one day, every person is going to stand before his throne, and they will be asked, what have you done with me? What have you made of my name? Now, the second question I want to ask together is, how does God redeem his people? How does God redeem his people? I found this to be one of the most interesting parts of this story, because the Exodus shows us the process of redemption. Look back at Exodus 13, verse 17. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Now, what do I want you to notice here? Interesting. God does not lead the people of Israelites when they have their freedom from point A to point B. Instead, he takes them the long way, the indirect way. Why? Why does God lead them on an indirect route? If you're following on your notes, because God prepares us for our freedom by guiding us on his path. Not our path. Not the path we think is Beth. His path. Friends, have you learned this? Sometimes God's path is not your path. Sometimes God's route is not your route. I'll show you a map, actually, of what this is describing here. You can see the Israelites from point A to point B, it would be that red arrow. That's the route that the Egyptians are going to take. 
But instead, here's the route God takes them, right? I mean, we're going to go south a little bit. We're going to go this long, indirect route to get to the place I want to get you to. Does God ever work like that in your life? For six years, I've been on the long, indirect route, and it's hard not to ask those questions. What are you doing? Where are you leading me? Why are you guiding me this way? Maybe you're in a season of life where you wish that the Lord would just move this thing along a little bit faster. Why haven't you done that yet? Well, we see in this text the answer to that. It is the mercy of God on our lives. Do you see that? The people, weak and weary from 400 years of slavery, God knows they would return to their slavery if he led them straight from point A to point B. So before he takes them to the Philistines, he says, I'm going to shape you. I'm going to mold you. I'm going to bolster your confidence in me. So he takes them the long way. So listen, if you're on the long way right now, don't resent that. View it as the mercy of God on your life because he's almost certainly preparing you for what lies ahead. And it's a necessary part of our redemptive journey. We've already talked about the artwork uh, this week, but let me just show you on the screen, if you can't see it, the picture we painted or we chose this week. This was done uh, by Melody Neasel. And one of the reasons I like this is kind of what Melody wrote uh, about it, which I'm going to have on the screen for you to follow along. She says, when I was reading this, I was struck by how the Israelites left in the middle of the night in haste. I imagined them leaving their lamps on and going quickly. But then I was reminded that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Even though they left in haste, they didn't reach their goal destination for a long time. Even though the journey would be long, the Israelites were moving in God's will to somewhere better. They must have been frightened to leave a place that felt like home. However debilitating and constricting that place was, to go to an unknown place, to drop everything and run, not knowing where you're going, that's scary. How often do I forget to trust my Jesus with where he is taking me? To just go, knowing he'll guide and protect before me and behind me, out of slavery, through the wilderness, into land flowing with milk and honey. I can trust him. He sees the whole picture. Amen? God will not always take us the quick, easy way because he sees the whole picture. He sees the whole picture. Now, not only does God take us the long way sometimes, number two there, he also brings us to the end of ourselves. He brings us to the end of ourselves. It's so important when we come to understanding the pattern of redemption. Look at verse 20 of chapter 13. After leaving Succoth, they came at, camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Haroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. Now, I know that's a lot of places we've never heard of, so it's hard to picture it, but let me just give you the big idea of what's going on here. God is trapping the Israelites. 
God is trapping his very own people. You see, they've come to the edge of the Red Sea on one side, and there's nowhere for them to go, other words, other than straight back. Mountains surround them, one path out. Unfortunately, on that path, the Egyptians are coming. So there is absolutely no escape. They are trapped between an unconquerable army and an impassable sea. Now, we don't know exactly where the Exodus event actually took place, but it probably looks something similar to this. This is a perspective from the sea. There would be no way for them to get out. They are trapped. And I'm going to say this very slow. That is and always will be the way of God in redemption. That is and always will be the way of God in redemption. Friends, he will always bring us to the end of ourselves. He will always bring us to the end of our resources. He will always bring us to the end of our own ideas. He will always bring us to the end of our salvation techniques. Now the good news is even though they're trapped, God has been flexing his muscles for weeks now, right? He bent the whole natural order of things. Hail, wind, disease, life, death, blood. And yet, the people of God here, I get encouraged by these stories. We've always been slow to learn, haven't we? We've always been slow to learn. Look at Skip. Skip down to verse 10 there. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. If that's not the pattern of my redemption story, I don't know what is. We're going to see this again and again in the story of the Israelites, right? This constant complaining and grumbling and questioning God. Imagine all God has done for them here. The great pains to which he has gone to bring them out of slavery. They're not even completely out of it yet. And they're already whining and complaining and grumbling, accusing him of not caring. If you're a parent, you know this. You've heard it. And it makes you want to pull your hair out, whatever hair you have left. Right? Oh, this isn't really what I was hoping to get. Well, why don't we just take all your stuff then and burn it out in the front yard, right? You just want to, you just want to like burst out in anger. Complaining just makes you crazy as a parent. And then I see that I do it myself. I grumble. I complain. I question God's goodness, his kindness. As much as I wish I didn't, I relate to them. As often as God has come through for me, it's hard to trust him when things seem impossible. But what if I told you that is all part of God's redemptive plan? He has to bring us to the end of ourselves if we're going to experience true freedom in him. Jesus told a parable about this very thing in Luke chapter 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What does Jesus say then? I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Why? Because he's come to the end of himself. And that's where you find God. That's where you find redemption. I'll have parents sometimes come talk to me about a child that has gone wayward. They've walked away from the Lord. What do we do? How do we love them? How do we pray for them? I almost always will tell them, pray that they come to the end of themselves. Think of the story of the prodigal son sitting in that pigsty, eating the pods that the pigs ate. It was then and only then that he, quote, came to his senses and remembered the father's love for him. God will bring us to the end of ourselves. Now what happens? What happens when we come to the end of ourselves? Well, that leads to the third question, which is what does God do to redeem? What does God do to redeem? Now, instead of reading it together, we're actually going to watch it. In one of the greatest depictions of this story, I think that's been done. Take a look at this. Friends, if we should take away one thing from this story about redemption, if you're falling on your notes, it's this. We are redeemed completely by the power and grace of God. Completely by the power and grace of God. What does the Red Sea story account tell us about how to get out of bondage? Only God can do it. Only God can do it. Would you read verses 13 and 14 of Exodus 14 on your notes there with me? It's kind of the pinnacle of this whole story. It says, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The principle of grace could not be any clearer than that. Be still. Watch. Stand firm. I'm going to do the fighting for you. You can't do it yourself. You can't perform it. You can't contribute to it. You're not going to do a doggone thing about your deliverance. God's going to do the whole thing. This is why we have to come to the end of ourselves, isn't it? It's why. When Moses says, be still and trust the God who will fight for you, that comes awfully close to Romans 4, 5, which says, however, to the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Be still. Do not trust your own works. Receive a complete salvation done by Christ's work. Friends, I've been saying this for 16 and a half years that I've been here. I'm going to keep saying it as long as God has me here. This is what sets Christianity apart from any other religion in the world right here. What would any other religion say about how we cross the Red Sea? Any other religion says, you got to build a bridge. You got to build a bridge, right? I mean, so we take one brick at a time, our good works, our good deeds, and we say, okay, 
I'm going to build this bridge across this Red Sea. Hopefully, by the end of my days, I will make it to the other side. That's what everything, every other religion says. Sadly, some forms of Christianity as well, so-called Christianity. It's a process, right? You're going to get over to the other side. That is not so with Christianity. Christianity says one minute you're redeemed. Right before that, you weren't. One minute you're in the kingdom of darkness. The next you're in the kingdom of light. One minute you're not adopted. The next minute you are adopted. You have either walked through the Red Sea, through it, or you haven't. The Exodus is saying that redemption comes to those who trust that God has fought the battle for you. It's already been accomplished. If you are a follower of Jesus, you've crossed over. You've crossed over from sin and death. After that, all of our other problems, uh, they're just like flea bites in comparison, right? He's fought the big battle for us. The Lord is our warrior. The constant message of the story, the story of the Bible, is that we cannot save ourselves. Only God can save us. Verse 30 of Exodus 14 sums it up this way, if you want to look down there. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. It is the same thing for every follower of Jesus. That day, what day was it for you? It was a day when I was seven. That day, the Lord saved Steve. And I crossed from death to life. Do you have a day you can look to? How did the Israelites escape from slavery? It was not the wind and the tide. It was not poor strategy on the part of Pharaoh. It was not merely a sudden storm over the water. It was the power of God. He is the one who redeemed Israel. And he is still the one who redeems today. And he does it the same way. Now that leads to the last question we've got to ask together this morning if we're doing good reporting here. Which is, so what difference does redemption make for our lives? So what difference does redemption make for our lives? Gosh, we could spend the rest of the day here. You want to do that? Probably not. So why don't I pull two things out from the story that it clearly teaches us about, so what? So what difference does it make? Number one, it says the redeemed are to be a people who commemorate. The redeemed are to be a people who commemorate. Commemorate? What? That just means we're to be a remembering people, a people who remember. Look back at Exodus 13, if you still have your Bible open there, starting in verse 3 now. It says, Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. Skip down to verse 8. On that day, the day you observe it, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. Here God introduces what becomes known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the Israelites are to celebrate it every year. Why? 
Why, why does God institute this? So they can remember what God has done for them because it's either easy to take it for granted or it's easy to forget. We do the same thing in our culture. Just this past Thursday, we commemorated something called Valentine's Day. Why do we have Valentine's Day? Well, there's lots of reasons why. But one of the reasons isn't because we forget. Oh, I forgot that I'm married to Peggy. I need Valentine's Day. Part of the reason is to commemorate, to remember the people that God has put in our lives, to set aside a day to say, oh, it's easy to take this for granted sometimes. In the same way, God says we are to be a commemorating people. You see this happen all throughout the Old Testament, right? When people have an encounter with God, what do they do? They build an altar. Why? So that they can remember. This is where God met me. This is where God has been faithful in my life. Same thing in the New Testament. We are called to be a commemorating people. What does Jesus tell us we should commemorate together as God's redeemed people? What did he institute? The new festival of unleavened bread. It's called the Lord's Supper. Communion. In fact, read Luke twenty-two nineteen on your notes out loud with me there. It says, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. A new festival of unleavened bread, where we remember the new exodus in Jesus' blood. We are to do that. Why? Yes, because we forget sometimes, but more importantly, to remind ourselves, to not take for granted what we have here. God has saved me. God has taken care of me. God has delivered me. I didn't deliver myself. Anytime you eat that bread and drink that cup, I didn't deliver myself. I didn't deliver myself. God is the one who has redeemed me. God is the one who has done this for his people, and it cost him his life. It's so easy to forget that. Or to take it for granted. But we are to be a remembering people. Second thing, the redeemed are to be a people who celebrate. The redeemed are to be a people who celebrate. God's people are a celebrating people. We're not going to look at it today, but if you have time, go read Exodus 15. Immediately after this event, what do the Israelites do? They praise God. They sing, they lift up their hands, they pull out the instruments. What else can you do when you have an experience of redemption like that? You know, I've seen grown men high five, yell, scream because their team has won a sporting event. And yet it's easy to come to church sometimes and sort of be like, I don't like this song, it repeats too much. I'm not sure why Miriam is playing a liar, right? Why is Moses using those words? What? Like as amazing as a miracle it was, the Cubs won the World Series. How much more amazing is it that God has won the greatest victory of all time for you? How can we stand here and not offer our bodies in praise and worship and singing when we have a God who is redeemed? The victory is yours if you have received it. Therefore, you are a person who celebrates. You celebrate. 
Friends, as we wrap up this story, I'll just remind you one more time, there's no middle ground here. You've either walked through the Red Sea or you haven't. So I'll ask you, am I walking fully in the power of God's redemption? Am I walking fully in the power of God's redemption? Well, how do I know? Well, friend, let's just bow our heads right now. Put away your notes. As we pray, as we wrap this up, I'm going to just ask you some guided questions. What does it look like for us to walk fully in the power of redemption today? So let's pray. Oh God, you are great and mighty and powerful. You are alone are the one who saves. You are a redeemer. You are our savior. You are a friend. But Lord, we want to just take this story this morning and have a time of reflection. We don't want just information now. We filled out some lines on a note. That's good. But more importantly, we want this to affect our lives. So we just pause now and we ask, ask yourself, have I come to the end of myself? Or are you still depending on your resources, your ideas, your salvation techniques? Hear the word of the Lord to you today. You have to come to the end of yourself to experience true freedom. But here's some good news. You can do that right now. Lord, I have nothing to offer but myself. But he's offered everything for you. So I'll ask that next question is, have you completely trusted in his power and grace to save you alone. I know many of you have done that, but maybe some of you haven't. You don't think you're worthy or that you deserve it. That you have to clean yourself up first. Oh, that is not how it works. He took a bunch of complaining, whining, grumbling people and he made them his own. And he can do the same with you even now. For those of us who have made that decision, are we living in such a way that our lives are clearly consecrated for God? Where obedience is joy. Where are there things in my life right now that I just need to acknowledge before him? A sin, a habit pattern something I'm keeping for myself because I think that's where true freedom is. God, we confess these things to you. Finally, am I a person who remembers and celebrates? So easy to come here week after week, check off the box, Lord. I admit that to you. That's not what we want to do. We want to remember. We don't want to take what we have for granted. And we want to celebrate.
what's keeping me from celebrating with an open heart. Father, you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. You are the one who redeems. And for that, we rejoice. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.